Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Declan Garvey and David Drucker. And boy, do we have a lineup today. We're going to talk some State of the Union, what it looks like a few days out now, and what it means for Joe Biden's administration and what it told us about Republicans moving forward. Got to talk about the balloon a little, just just touching on some balloon content. Uh, Trump DeSantis comes to the fore. So does Biden Harris. Was this a win for the Biden White House, the way that his advisors are are touting it? I mean, they're taking some real victory laps this week. Yeah, really good question. Look, I think it sort of depends on exactly what they hope to accomplish. Democrats broadly were very, very happy with the speech. And you could see it across social media. I could sense it on the Hill. Um, I was on Capitol Hill for the State of the Union, talked to a number of Democrats after the speech as they were leaving the House chamber. And even Democrats that still aren't sold on Joe Biden for 2024 had nothing bad to say about the speech. And a number of Democrats were, in fact, very energized by it. The key question I wanted to, to, to ask, and I think what the White House really wanted to accomplish here, is to put President Biden in a place where party regulars are comfortable with him as the 2024 nominee. If he runs, which we expect, he will be the nominee, but are they going to be comfortable with it? Are they going to be energized by it, right? And going back to last year when things really went south for him with his approval ratings and concerns about his ability to govern and navigate a very difficult national, international political environment, there's been a lot of talk about We like Joe Biden quite a bit, but we're just not sure that an 80-year-old man who's going to be 82 when he would take office for a second time is up to this kind of a job, which, Sarah, Declan, as you know, you go into the presidency at age 45, as we saw with President Obama, early 50s with President George W. Bush, and you come out looking like you're 85 years old, right? So how's it going to be for somebody who's 82 on their way into a second term? And the sense that I got from the State of the Union and talking to Democrats and just watching them is that they feel a lot better about Joe Biden as their nominee in 2024 after the speech than they did before. I think the question is, where are the rest of the regulars, right? The professional operatives, the the activists that are involved in party politics, not necessarily progressive anti-establishment politics, but party politics. Um, Are they really confident in him. I I think that this speech might have helped him in that regard, but I still think he has a ways to go. Yeah. I mean, to that point, there was a huge drop off in viewership. Now, maybe you could argue that it's not really about watching the State of the Union, but 27 million people, which look, that's a lot of people. But we were talking in the 40s and 50s for, you know, past presidents even for Joe Biden's first day of the union address, I believe it was in the high 30s. Um, so a, a big drop off there if you're trying to convince the majority of Democrats who don't want to see him as the nominee. Um, but as I said, like maybe it's not watching the whole thing. Maybe it's just watching that clip of the back and forth with Republicans where watching it in real time, I believe there was a chance he could really sort of lose the microphone, if you will, and lose control of the room. And instead, it went the exact opposite way. You know, there aren't a lot of politicians who I think could have handled that um, as well as he did. And I think it did undermine the narrative that, you know, he's mentally not all there. He's, you know, that took a lot of acuity (laughs) in, in the moment and a lot of quickness to the room back and actually turn it into a uh, a political positive for him. Declan, I want to dive in on a few specific moments, particularly not part of the State of the Union, the Mitt Romney, George Santos back and forth, because it's sort of it's this Rorschach test, right? On the one hand, I'm hearing from the right 
This looked like some sort of ploy by Romney to get a lot of love and attention from the MSNBC crowd who's broadcasting this nonstop this morning. Uh, On the other hand, maybe it wasn't a very nice thing to say to George Santos. On the other, other hand, there's a lot of hands on this uh, question. Um, Mitt Romney's right or Mitt Romney's defending the party or, you know, et cetera. And today just announced that Mitt Romney has given this sort of all access diaries, emails to McKay Coppins, who will be publishing a biography of Mitt Romney, um, a book about Mitt Romney while he's still in office. This like all access book. So what's Mitt Romney doing, Declan? Uh, you know, I think he's really just saying what he feels. Uh, he he kind of is is over a lot of the, you know, when, when he was running in 2012, when he was thinking about running in 2016, he had to be a little bit more calculated, a little bit more careful with what he's saying. And at this point, I think he could take or leave whether he serves another term in the Senate when he uh, decides whether or not to run for re-election in, in 2024. Uh, and he really just is saying what he feels. And what he feels is that George Santos does not belong in Congress. I don't think it was um, a, a ploy to uh, for a certain crowd or whatnot. I think he's just uh, frustrated by by what he sees and, and what he sees in his party. Um, you know, I, I, I think that it, it's funny seeing the the split screens of how he uh, Romney recounted the conversation to how Santos recounted the conversation to different reporters. It's I can't imagine uh, Romney ever saying the word ass, <laughs> and, which is what Santos says he said. I think Romney might have said tookus or he could have said rear end or something like that. But I don't think he would ever call him an ass. Um, so I, I think, you know, it's. It got a lot of attention. Uh, they're not, by for all intents and purposes, they're not members of the same party. I know they both have the R next to their name, but it really is just not uh, an intra-party <laughs> spat. It's 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 a, a bipartisan spat there. Um, I do want to touch on a, a point David made there, and I think it was a good one that um, Democrats are really engaged or were really encouraged by Biden's speech. I think it's a little silly that um, you know. The fact that he can stand up there for 80 minutes and give a speech totally changes the perspective on whether they want him to be president for four more years. But I do think there's there's some truth to it. I mean, somebody who gave a progressive rebuttal to his speech last year, uh, Rashida Tlaib, representative from uh, Michigan, was shouting encouragements to Biden during this speech uh, when he was talking about his wealth tax that's never going to be implemented. But um he really has managed to consolidate the the party around him, uh, despite being not a particularly transformative figure or a particularly popular figure for that matter, given, given the polling. I know there's uh, polls showing Democratic voters don't necessarily want him to run for another term, but there's not that same appetite uh, among people in D.C. I think we've talked about it on this podcast before the Saturday Night Live skit from a couple months ago where... Uh, a group of friends sitting around being like, we probably don't want Biden to be the nominee again. Right. And then they think through who the alternatives are. And then they're, they come back pretty quickly to no, 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 we're, we're good with Biden. So uh, I think that's where we're at. I mean, we'll see what happens with the document scandal in in the next coming weeks and months. And, and, you know, there's always the the possibility of a health scare uh, between now and, and next November, but uh, for all intents and purposes, it seems like it's, it's Biden 2024. David, what did we learn about the Republican Party? And specifically, I'm thinking of the the same exchange, right, on Social Security and Medicare. This was an intra-party dispute in some ways uh, with Rick Scott putting out his plan ahead of the midterms where he calls for all legislation to sunset. Well, all legislation in theory includes... Social Security and Medicare, even though he didn't mention them specifically. And that's what sort of gave Democrats the talking point that Republicans want to end Social Security and Medicare, even though sunsetting just means you could reauthorize it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Mitch McConnell shut down the Rick Scott plan immediately and said, if we take back the Senate, I'll be majority leader. Basically, Rick Scott doesn't matter. And what we saw at State of the Union, I mean, Republicans literally stood up to repudiate 
the Rick Scott plan in some respects. At the same time, you have Republicans saying that they're budget hawks, that they want to cut spending. I'm confused how you're going to do that without touching entitlement reform or even talking about it, two of the biggest line items in the budget. Um, And also after four years of the Trump administration, where they learned how good it feels to never have to say no, right? Spending is fun, man. And not spending is not fun. (laughs) Austerity, how lame. So where does that leave the Republican Party? Is there a fiscally conservative party now? Yeah, Sarah, uh, all all really good points. Listen, I've, I've been saying this for the past several years. There is no constituency to cut spending and get our debt under control. The only constituency that exists is a constituency to cut spending that is favored by the party that I don't like. So when there's a Democrat in the White House, Republicans rediscover their fiscal conservatism. And when there's a Republican in the White House, Democrats borrow that occasionally rediscovered fiscal conservatism because it's all in the service of opposition to the enemy. The American people are not interested in cutting spending. They think that they pay so much in taxes in all sorts of different ways that government should actually be spending more for them, not less. And while in theory, they would say that they want their, the nation's fiscal house in order and that exorbitant debts are bad, and you can poll these and, you know, every other day, there's some new outfit that favors a reduction in spending and taking care of the debt that will tell you the American people in our polling are in favor of a responsible plan to control the deficit and cut spending and deal with all of these programs. Uh, Once you tell them what those programs are, there's always a constituency that that is for keeping those programs because those are the good programs. Right. And um, when it comes to Medicare and Social Security, you're also correct to point out that if you want to get the debt under control, you have to deal with the biggest drivers of the debt. And for the uninitiated, it's not like I'm some big wonk, but the uninitiated Medicare and Social Security do not have to be reauthorized every year or ever. They are automatically renewing programs, if you will, that spend whatever they need to spend. Occasionally, the Congress can can vote to increase Medicare benefits or increase Social Security benefits, but otherwise these things just keep spending more and more money to handle more and more customers, if you will, more retirees, uh, more healthcare recipients over the age of, that hit the age of 65, And seniors happen to be reliable voters every two years without fail. They vote in small elections, big elections. Nobody wants to make them mad. And even a few years back when Paul Ryan tried to suggest reforming these programs only for younger workers, which included people under the age of 50. So I don't even know if I qualify anymore. Apparently, you wouldn't be able to touch my Social Security anymore as I'm over the age of 50. Uh, Well, you know. The Democrats ran ads that he was throwing grandma off a cliff and uh, so much for that. So the biggest fun I've had in a long time in regard to a state of the union, which is plainly not fun, is watching this speech where Biden rolls out the attack on entitlement programs, Republicans and mass boo. And he says, OK, well, I guess we're in agreement. We're not touching these programs. And he declared victory and and went home, so to speak. And so there you go. You do not have to worry about Republicans or Democrats messing with your entitlement programs. Although for political purposes, the president is still running around the country saying that that's what Republicans want to do, based in part on the fact that some Republicans, like Senator Rick Scott, still believe these programs need to be addressed. And as we saw in Madison, Wisconsin, The day after the State of the Union, the president pulls out Rick Scott's handy-dandy, glossy uh, brochure where he talks about all the changes he wants to make to the federal government, which includes the sunset of all federal programs or the reassessment of all federal programs every so many years. Uh, By the way, uh, Senator Scott responded to that by some with, with bringing up some old plan that Biden had proposed some decades back in which he believed all programs should be looked at as well, uh, which I'm sure the president was happy to see because it continues his ability to push this 
message that Republicans secretly, quietly want to take things away from you. Reminds me so much of the polling that every pollster at this point has done, which is, do you believe that politicians should compromise more to get things done? 76%. Yeah. Uh, Do you believe politicians compromise on your side, compromise too much on the issues you care about? 78%. Yeah. (laughs) You know, everyone's for cutting spending when it's the other guy's ox being gored. But you don't actually cut the stuff that you enjoy, that you like from the government. Um, Declan, what did we learn about the Democrats? So in Biden's State of the Union speech, it was very interesting what wasn't really emphasized. The balloon, (laughs) not in there. Um, You know, very, very brief reference on immigration. Fascinating. It is fascinating. I it really was an economic driven speech, uh, which is is something that you <laughs> might not uh, have expected to be the case six months ago, even three months ago. Um, but the 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 rate of inflation has come down in recent months. The job market, as evidenced by uh, last week's jobs report, uh, which was very well timed for Biden to be able to to say we have the lowest unemployment rate in in fifty three years. Uh, just days before this State of the Union, so they really were driving this this economic message, and it it is kind of nuts that uh, I think I I saw it was John Podoritz in commentary made it made a note of this. He Biden spent about two hundred and seventy words talking about the junk fees reduction uh, act, something like that, and one hundred and eighty words on China in this speech, um, which which I sort of thought. Uh, you know, talking to other folks, there were people who were eye rolling at that. I thought it was great politics, man. You want to talk about what people spend more of their time complaining about China or the fact that their family can't sit together on that flight? I promise you it's the latter. It, you you are correct. It's good politics. Uh, but the same token, like Rick Scott's plan, really, 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 really bad politics, as evidenced by what happened in the midterms, by Mitch McConnell's reaction to his plan. Not necessarily bad policy by any means. I mean, if, if you do think that these entitlement programs are running us off a fiscal cliff, which they are, at some point, somebody has to put forward a plan to deal with it. And even set that, that aside, if you think Congress isn't doing its job, if you sunset every major piece of legislation and just force them to vote more often in order to keep things like Social Security and Medicare running, forget even cutting them, it would actually maybe, you know, be like having a regular workout session where members of Congress remember what it's like to take votes that aren't actually hard, but are harder than the votes they're taking now to rename the post office after someone everyone likes. Right. And so it, it's you see this on on both sides with with Biden not mentioning just if we don't talk about immigration, it's not going to be a focus. Uh, if we don't talk about China, it's not going to be a focus. Uh, but at the same time, Republicans are saying if if we don't talk about entitlements, it won't be a focus. And and then uh, here we are <laughs> barreling towards this, this cliff. So somebody has to talk about it at some point. Um, and, uh, you know, somebody has to talk about China at some point, too, which we could do now. Let's let's talk about China. David, what is the foreign policy vibe right now on the Hill? Uh, you know, we talk so much about Russia and Ukraine in the last year. But there's China just looming over there as a very different adversary, but in many respects, a much more existential one than Russia would be. Yeah, Russia is a a faded power. China is a rising power. And China wants to supplant the United States as the globe's preeminent superpower. And they have the sort of economy and economic clout internationally that they're a much different sort of competition than the USSR was. And I say this as a Cold War kid, but you know, it was easy uh, during the Cold War as an American, as an American-based corporation to not do business in the Soviet Union because there was no business to do in the Soviet Union. China is the world's second largest economy and it has a consumer market that is um, huge. Their consumers actually buy products and it's it's this sort of hybrid between a, a authoritarian communist regime, which can 
controls life in China, but also allows a large degree of independence, at least enough such that you can buy products and you can watch movies and you can go to basketball games. And it's such so, a fascinating difference from the Cold War, because in some respects, what China's doing is very similar. I think their investments in Africa, while I think larger and more productive than anything the USSR was doing, like it's the same game plan. Maybe it's better executed, um, you know, as, as when the USSR was trying to build out alliances as well. Um, but the integration of American companies into China would now be impossible to unwind. American companies don't want to unwind. The market, as you said, is huge. And it's such an integral part of their bottom line. Um, night and day difference. And it makes this entire conversation about what you do about China, quote unquote, this ain't the Cold War anymore, because they're not <laughs> they're not viewed as adversaries in the same way when so many of our companies rely on their business. Right. And American consumers rely on Chinese products. Now, a, a lot of that manufacturing has been diversified throughout Asia, so it's not only China. But again, the the Soviet Union made zero products that we had to rely on. They were not a part of our supply chain. And so it's a different sort of a confrontation and a foreign policy challenge than the Soviet Union was. On the other hand, one of the things I've noticed in the past few years is that concern about China and an understanding about the threat that China faces and what, how China is trying to overmatch and outcompete the United States has really become a bipartisan issue on Capitol Hill. In some ways, more than I ever remember uh, foreign policy differences between the parties existing in the past. I mean, there was always this sense among Democrats and Republicans years ago that the Republicans were hawkish. They wanted military buildup in order to deal with the Soviet threat. Democrats thought that that was too provocative, and wanted less in defense spending. And while both sides will have different opinions on defense spending, there seems to be a bipartisan consensus among the mainstream of both parties that China is a threat that must be addressed and addressed aggressively. Now, there are populist Republicans on the right that have slightly different views on how we should handle this. There are progressive Democrats on the left that have slightly different views, but the mainstream. And the the Democrats and Republicans that are so hawkish on Ukraine help and helping them repel Russia are, are hawkish in part because they understand that this relates directly to China, that China and other authoritarian nations are watching Russia's actions and the response from the West. And if the U.S. and the West go soft on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that's going to be a signal to China and other authoritarians that at the very least, all you have to do is wait them out and they'll go soft on us too. And that will be a green light for China to consider even more so taking back Taiwan by force and other authoritarian nations who have territorial designs on their neighbors. And we're going to end up with a lot, with, with many more problems to deal with on that front. On the other hand, we stand strong in terms of our military and financial support for Ukraine. And it's not just us, but the West. And those nations and China are going to continue to, to, if not reassess, just tread a lot more carefully, even though the bluster will continue. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Tax Network USA. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best possible deal. Whether you owe 10000 dollars or 10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income, they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash dispatch. And Declan, politically, how does the Biden administration think they handled Balloon Gate? Where does that leave us on Balloon Gate? 
well, I do have an update on Balloon Gate. They, uh, the State Department issued a, a release just a couple minutes ago, uh, saying that after they collected this this balloon from the the Pacific Ocean and and um, intelligence agencies have been doing analyses of it, uh, that it was quote clearly for intelligence surveillance and inconsistent with the equipment on board weather balloons. Um, it was quote likely capable of collecting and geolocating communications, um, and that it had solar panels on it to allow it to. Uh, float around for for quite a long period of time and transmit data back to China in real time. This was part of a program that uh, the military, the Chinese military, has been operating for over five years, um, uh, traversing forty countries across five continents. Um, so this is uh, not a uh, not a weather balloon. The the, the poor <laughs> person uh, in the the Chinese weather. National Weather Service, who got fired last week over this, uh, seems to have been in error. Uh, he seems to be a scapegoat for for something. Uh, could have could have predicted that uh, the minute it happened. But yeah, I mean, I this is, I said this on Dispatch Live earlier this week. I, it it could be a moment where this forces us to actually think about the the amount of surveillance China's already doing uh, and that they've been doing for years that we are okay with. Um, big balloon floating around the sky, bad. Chinese surveillance app downloaded to your phone that you can watch videos on. Okay. Um, you know, the, I, we're taking steps. The government's taking steps to block Huawei and, and other, um, you know, Chinese infrastructure companies. Huawei is a, a telecoms company that, that um, has been, you know, building out national infrastructure in countries around the world. The United States has said, no, you can't do that here anymore. Um, but there's all these other things that, that we are okay with. We're okay with you know, having Amazon Alexas in our home that are listening to to all these different things that we're doing. We're okay with downloading TikTok. Um, but if there's a big balloon in the sky, which again, not good, not good that there's a big balloon in the sky, but it's, you know, priorities here. Um, I, I, I don't see... Do you see, have TikTok on your phone, Declan? I do not, no. Um, I might have at one point, but I did not, I do not now. Um, because I read Clon Kitchen. Because I read Clon Kitchen, but Clon finally guilted me into getting rid of it. I miss it though. I, uh, I, I think the the politics of it. I, um, Republicans in the in the House stood up a select committee on China. I think that was a really smart thing to do. It not only kind of creates a, a centralized place for a lot of these conversations and debates to happen, but it also helps them elevate the issue in that, you know, when when reporters are writing about this stuff now, they're going to go to Mike Gallagher, who's who's chairing that committee and, and asking him and one of the best people that Republicans can put out there on this issue and, and um, kind of give him a little bit more of a platform to, to work on this, these issues. Um, and so I think it will only continue to be a bigger story uh, in, in the coming years. And, and if it takes a big balloon uh, floating over the, the country to kind of get the country country to focus on it and pay attention to it, uh, maybe it could be a, a good thing in the long run. David, is it a fair criticism that we should have, that the Biden administration should have shot the balloon down earlier um, and that this shows a weakness on China or that Joe Biden uh, is afraid of upsetting China in the pocket of China? This is proof of corruption. I mean, where does this fall on the spectrum? What's fair? What's not? Look, I'm still trying to gather information about the balloon so that I can understand or come to my own conclusion as to whether the president was weak or made a wrong decision in how he allowed it to traverse the continental United States before shooting it down uh, in the Atlantic Ocean, in our territorial waters where he had the right to shoot it down and, and recover it. For anybody that has studied and followed Joe Biden's political career, um, he's typically been hesitant to take military action or support military action. He's been very dovish over the years in that sort of classic modern Democratic Party sort of way, although that hasn't stopped him from supporting uh, military engagements over the years when he was a voting member of the United States Senate. Um, so when you look at Joe Biden, you can come at this with the presumption that he's cautious uh, sometimes overly cautious, at least in the eyes of some, particularly those on the right, that he worries about the consequences of military action, sometimes seemingly more so than the consequences of inaction. 
But I think that when you look at how he's handled uh, Ukraine and when you look at his rhetoric and some of the moves he has made in the Asia Pacific, I don't think it's fair to say that he's necessarily been weak on China. I think time will tell whether he's been effective, whether he should have been uh, more aggressive in combating China, but I'm not sure that he's been weak. And with the balloon specifically, look, I come at this from somebody who just wants to, to to shoot things all the time, right? I mean, you even get close to our territorial waters, shoot it down. People threaten us. You make it clear that we've got the bigger stick. So I, I'm not a, a, a dove by any sense, but but maybe the president made the right decision in dealing with this balloon. And, you know, I think we're just going to need to learn more. And I think time will tell, um, you know, as it relates to whether this was handled properly and effectively. I think that your last point there, David, is is absolutely the correct one. I think it's easy and natural for anything, especially something like this, where it's so visible and, and tangible to jump to your your corners and I'm a Republican, so it's bad that we didn't shoot it down or I'm a Democrat. So it's genius move that that we uh, kept it. It, it. We don't know anywhere near enough right now to conclusively say that one way or the other. I mean, stuff will will start trickling out. I, the, the Pentagon has said that they were able to jam a lot of these um, antennas or, or data collection devices and uh once that once they acknowledged it and they they were able to stop china from collecting some of the data if that's true then sure i think it's fine that they waited until um there was no risk to to harming any civilian infrastructure or people um i mean this this was the size of of three city buses um uh, <laughs> falling from from the sky with all this equipment attached and so uh in in one sense that makes sense in the other um it could also just not be true that that the Pentagon was able to block all this stuff and, and that China was collecting. They were floating this over um, Montana, where we have nuclear launch fields there. You know, balloons are able to uh, collect certain radio frequencies that satellites are not. Um, so there are there are some reasons why why China would be doing this rather than just relying on their satellite constellation. Um, but we also from from this State Department report uh, a couple minutes ago saw that um, the United States was doing U2 flybys of the balloon over the past week and able to, that was how they collected some of this information that they have about the program um, is is from those flybys. And so if they needed to keep it in the air to to kind of get a sense of the patterns or how it was being controlled, whatnot, um, maybe that's another thing to consider as well. But I just think it's too early to definitively say one way or the other. Uh, Biden seems to think that <laughs> he told an interviewer yesterday on, on PBS NewsHour that this does not hurt relations with China at all, that they totally expected that we would shoot it down once we uh, once we saw it. I don't know that that can be accurate. I think relations are different between the, now than they were a week ago, even if it's just because of the public pressure um, that, that the Biden administration is now under. They withdrew Blinken, uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken's meeting uh, in in China over this, and so uh, we'll have to see if it's a long uh, has a long tail, or if this is something we'll forget about in a week. Um, but it, uh, I just think it's too early to say one way or the other. All right. Well, let's move on. Polling in the Republican primary. It's fascinating, as Nate Cohn at the New York Times pointed out. There is a 30 point margin in some of these polls between some of these polls, I mean, um, of where Trump is versus where DeSantis is. Maybe they're neck and neck. Maybe DeSantis is up a little. Maybe Trump is walloping DeSantis. And these are in the the multi-candidate polls. Uh, Nate Cohn did a, a nice job walking through why the polls might have such variety and discrepancy and ruled out a lot of the normal culprits finally landing on the fact that clearly there's a problem in who they're asking, but we don't know which group is right and which group is wrong. But he came down on the side that there's some reasons to believe that Trump is, you know, 
weaker. It's not the he's 30 points ahead of DeSantis. It's, you know, he's a weak front runner, probably. Um, and by the way, I, I covered this in the latest sweep newsletter. So if you want to read more on what Nate Cohn was saying or these polls, feel free to go check that out. But what I'm more interested in is how Trump is acting. So he has taken several swipes at Ron DeSantis over Ron DeSantis' handling of COVID, then over Ron DeSantis on immigration and how he voted in the House, saying he wouldn't have endorsed him if he'd known. And then most recently, um, over a photo that's allegedly of Ron DeSantis with some women, they might be girls, I don't know, very confusing, saying that they're high school girls, that he was their teacher, and it's pretty gross. And Ron DeSantis responded. He said, I spend my time delivering results for the people of Florida and fighting against Joe Biden. That's how I spend my time. I don't spend my time trying to smear other Republicans. This has been heralded as a brilliant response, totally shutting down Donald Trump and this um, roadmap for the path forward on how to deal with these sort of more and more outlandish Trump attacks. And my thought about this is, I think it is perfectly tuned to the 2023 political landscape in the Republican primary. But the idea that that would have worked in 2015, if you're Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz or Chris Christie, no way. They all tried versions of that many, many times over. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, but what do you say to Trump? And it was all about what Trump's next thing would be. Um, and so for me, what's so fascinating about this is it actually is highlighting how different the GOP primary in 2023 is than it was in 2015. And again, I think it looks a lot more like the 2008 Democratic primary where you have Hillary Clinton as, you know, the the juggernaut front runner and Barack Obama as the underdog everyone's rooting for type thing because he's not Hillary Clinton. And then everyone just pours their hopes and dreams into the empty vessel of the other candidate. Uh, I think there's plenty of Republicans who have issues with Ron DeSantis's record and would probably have more issues with it if they spent more time with his record. But Ron DeSantis at this point is filling in the not Donald Trump part. Um, and as uh, a la pundit, nay, Nick, <laughs> also put out in his newsletter, this is going to be a referendum on Donald Trump. And that makes it much different and much you know, easier might be the wrong word in some ways. It opens up a lot more options for someone like Ron DeSantis than candidates had in 2015. So with that incredibly long intro, David, um, do you find the Trump-DeSantis back and forth uh, better for DeSantis or Trump? I mean, we're still talking about it. Trump's still getting the attention. And as I said at the beginning, probably still leading in the polls. Where's this all going to shake out? Yeah, well, look, a naked man running down the street is always going to get attention, even if you don't want to see it. There's just no way around that. Uh, look, Jonah said he didn't know that people were watching. <laughs> right. Well, it's hard not to watch because the accusations and the mudslinging is it's just impossible not to see it. But I think there are some key differences. Um and I think you're getting to this here between 2023 and 2015. And I'm going to sound like a broken record here for, for anybody that's hear me say this. But in 2015, Donald Trump was, Trump was the ultimate change agent. He was a known person in America, but he wasn't a political operator as a candidate. He had never run before. He was, he was known because he was a famous businessman, not because he was a politician. So he's the ultimate change agent. There was something else that was a very, very big deal in 2015 that is not the same now. All of the Republicans that he was going after, the Republican voting base was happy to have him go after them. For depending on who we want to talk about, whether it's Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush, or you know, there were 38 of them. There were all these reasons why Republican voters didn't like them, didn't trust them, didn't want them. And so even if they were unsure about Trump, which they very quickly were not unsure about Trump, as we saw in the polling, which continued 
basically all the way through, except for a few interruptions, um, even if they weren't sure about Trump, they were tired of the same old thing they had been getting from the Republican Party. And so when he criticized them or attacked them in ways that we, you know, that, that, that people like us, generally speaking, found um, untoward, unconscionable, uh, improper, that voters had never accepted before, the voters were happy to pile on and say, yeah, exactly. I don't want these people. Look at them. They're awful. And therefore, even if Trump's being a little bit over the top, and even if I wouldn't actually approve of my own family members or children or spouse talking that way, I'm tired of all these politicians. They've been lying to me, cheating me. And finally, somebody's saying what I think, but never wanted to say. But this time around, and particularly with Ron DeSantis, well, Republican voters like Ron DeSantis. They think he's been doing a bang up job in Florida. And he's been proving to them that he is a fighter and he's fighting all the right people on all the right issues in all the right ways. So when Donald Trump goes after Ron DeSantis in the same ways that were so effective in going after his Republican competitors over the years, it's not necessarily going to work the same way because they like him. They trust him, meaning Ron DeSantis. And so the reaction might be, well, I know why you didn't like those other people, but what's wrong with Ron? Ron's one of the good guys. He's kind of governing in your image. In fact, he might be doing a better job than you on the ways in which were the whole reason I liked you. And so this is not fair. How could you do that to him? I, by the way, I've seen this among some, some Republican voters. And look, there are going to be other candidates in this race. Some of them may be viewed as throwbacks to the Reagan era, in which case Trump's attacks will work. Uh, but in many cases, they might not because we're dealing with a, a you know, if known quantities and a newer generation of Republican politicians that have made their bones in the Trump era, as opposed to the previous era, even if they've been around a long time. And by the way, I'll just then get back to this final point here, which is really important. Trump's now been on the scene for eight years. In some ways, he's like an incumbent that everybody gets tired of, even though he didn't get his second term. And so his attacks are not going to land the same way because he's not viewed the same way. And Declan, that's sort of the point that I'm interested in as well, which is um, like any treadmill situation, what you have to do to keep the same response. You know, your first time eating chocolate cake, incredible. Your 50th time eating chocolate cake, still great. Your 10,000th time eating chocolate cake, well, now it's just chocolate cake. You know, the hedonic treadmill effect here. Especially when it's all in one day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I do love chocolate cake. Um, and so for Trump, the things that he was saying were you didn't know what was coming out of his mouth next. Everything was this new outrage. And it was so easy to capture all of the oxygen in the room, all of the attention. What he's having to do and say now to even get a fraction of the attention he was getting before is pushing him, I think, more and more into a place that has actually a backlash effect where it's like, oh God, well, we can't have this again. Um, and and that's a fascinating reaction because it's driven by us, it's driven by media, it's driven by everything. You know, at one point a couple of weeks ago, he suggested throwing Josh Gerstein, the Politico reporter who published the Dobbs draft, into jail. Imagine him saying that in 2015, and that would have been a week-long news story. This time around, most people never saw it. They didn't notice. Nobody cared. Nobody covered it because he'd kind of already said stuff like that multiple times over the last six years. So what is this time? Uh, and I wonder how much room that's going to give these other candidates like a Nikki Haley or Chris Sununu or whoever else to to get into that field. Because when I mention it, you know, looking like 2008 in some respects, there were a lot of other Democrats who ran. Um, you know, who's the John Edwards of the Republican field who, you know, has like a respectable third place showing until it wasn't respectable for other reasons. But, um, you know, there was Dennis Kucinich. There were lots of other people who ran, but it was the narrative was always from Joe Biden. <laughs> that's right. From the, uh, 
you know, from January when Clinton and Obama both announced it was always Clinton versus Obama, really, from from that point forward. Yeah, I mean, I think the the non-Trump, non-DeSantis challengers are hoping uh, in, in some way that that I mean, th- their only chance is that Trump and DeSantis kind of get locked into this death match uh, early on, and then they both kind of tumble over the cliff uh, together and just bring each other down. I don't know that that's a incredibly likely scenario, um, but it's enough clearly to encourage Nikki Haley to get in the race, to encourage some of these other uh, governors and, and maybe Tim Scott to, to throw their hat in the ring. And so it's not a 0% um, proposition. I mean, I, I, I do think your point about Trump's outrageous statements is correct in that um, only only the outrageous stuff is what's breaking through. Uh, and even that is not breaking through anywhere near the amount that it uh, used to be. But it also is not that far out of the norm <laughs> of, of what he's saying. I mean, I, you see some high profile DeSantis backers in the media in recent days basically expressing the sentiment like, Oh my goodness! What a what a low blow by Trump. He's never stooped so low. This is this like he accused Ben Carson of being a pedophile in 2015, and then he appointed Ben Carson to serve as his homeland or HUD secretary for for all four years of his administration. This is not anything new. Uh, you know, Sarah, you know well the the lengths that his campaign was willing to slander people uh, and and uh, campaign staffers and whatnot to. Uh, to, to move forward in this race. So it's not anything new. Um, it's just the, the, the target is different as, as you mentioned, David, it's, it's somebody that is actually of kind of to, to go back to the Mitt Romney, George Santos point in 2015, 2016, Donald Trump had an R next to his name, but he was not really a Republican, uh, in, in that sense, Jeb Bush and Donald Trump were not part of the same party in, in any real way. Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump are, they're, their their fellow travelers, Ron DeSantis, remade himself in in Trump's image to to get the endorsement in in 2018 and to to go as far as he's gone already. Uh, so it, it it reads a little differently. I do think strategically from the the Trump side, it it shows a real weakness on his part that he is coming out of the gate swinging like this already before DeSantis is in the race six months before DeSantis will probably declare. And that leads, I mean, it, it, it shows that he's worried about him. It shows that uh, he might not believe that any of that polling that shows him as a front runner really uh, is, is legit. But I also think that it shows that his goal with this kind of stuff now is not necessarily to damage DeSantis, but keep him from running altogether um, and, and see if he can kind of dissuade him from getting into the race at all, there've been kind of rumor campaigns that that we've picked up on in D.C. that Trump's people are shopping around dirt on DeSantis and DeSantis's wife and that, you know, if they get in the race, things are going to get really, really dirty and, and ugly and you don't want to do this. We're going to air out all your dirty laundry. I have no shame. So you can say whatever you want about me. And, and it's already been out there. But you guys, it'll be really tough for you if you decide to run. Uh, I don't think that DeSantis is going to back down from a race because of that. I think his entire public persona to date is that he does not back down from this kind of thing. Um, but it is a real consideration for these candidates and their families is what they're going to have to go through uh, if they if they mount this bid. And, um, you know, Trump is going to make it incredibly unpleasant for, for anybody who decides to challenge him. And David, last question to you on this, which is why is Nikki Haley running or Pick anyone else, Tim Scott, Chris Sununu, any of these other folks we've talked about, Chris Christie, Larry Hogan. And obviously the answer is not going to be the same for all of them. Um, but A, do you think they believe that they have a real chance to win this race? B, you know, there's been some comment that maybe Nikki Haley is actually trying to run interference for Trump against DeSantis and looking for a VP pick. Three, there's just no downside to running for president anymore. It ups your name ID. It increases your fundraising base. Um, you get to be on a debate stage. And so, yeah, you don't quite know. Maybe it's a cabinet position now, maybe later. Maybe it's an ambassadorship down the road. Maybe it's a board position. Who knows? But why not? Because it's all good. 
Yeah, it's different for everybody. I think Nikki Haley believes she can win. I don't buy conspiracy theories because politicians aren't smart enough to pull them off. If anybody's watched any government run anywhere in the United States, you might think that conspiracy theories are far-fetched because the thing just doesn't work properly most of the time. Um, Nikki Haley's a very ambitious Republican. She's wanted to run for quite a while. She's managed to keep herself relevant for the past four years, basically, since she left government service. And you do not stay relevant forever unless you go back into government service or you run for office. She's a former governor, a former ambassador. And if and, and the timing for her may not be perfect because Trump didn't disappear or because the party seems to have flocked to Governor Ron DeSantis. But we've seen often where we don't think somebody is doing well or could do well because their polling isn't good or they don't seem to have a relationship with the right people in the party and they surprise us. So Nikki Haley has a very developed political operation, whatever her faults are, and, and we could list them. It's one of the more developed political operations of any of the potential candidates. And um, I just think she wants to be president. I think that there are others that know that it might not be in the cards for them. Let's take a governor, Chris Sununu, a very capable politician, very popular in New Hampshire, a very big deal on the Republican nominating calendar because it's the first traditional primary, second nominating contest. I, I haven't asked Governor Sununu this directly, but I've had a number of conversations with him over the past couple of years. I don't think that he thinks he's what the party is looking for, but it never hurts a politician to bask in the attention of will you or won't you. You get more speaking engagements to push your agenda and talk about your views for the country. People want to hear from you. And if you're in public service at a high level and being elected governor, being elected senator, even serving in Congress, these are high levels of engagement, then you want that attention because you want to affect policy and you want to be influential. Um, you want to put your Self on the radar for cabinet positions. Yeah, sure. Maybe that often goes with it. Put yourself on the radar as a potential vice presidential candidate. Sure. I, I don't put past put strategic moves past these politicians. Um, but as you, as you say, Sarah, they don't actually have to worry about losing. Right. And in, in the in the in the good old days when the smoke filled room controlled everything, uh, you know, these outsiders that would come along. We could argue maybe those were better old days, too, because you had better candidates, even though they were controlled by a bunch of cigar chomping elites. But um, um, in the old days, when you went against the party, there were rep repercussions. Now, when you're an outsider, um, when you're somebody who obviously doesn't have a chance in the world, you get a lot of attention. You get to be on TV. You get to be on cable news. You get to be on social media. And it just doesn't hurt. Like the worst that happens is you're still kind of a nobody, but now you've got, you know, a million dollars in some pack account and you're called on TV, you know, once or twice a week as a vaunted strategist of, of something or other. And, um, you know, it doesn't hurt your side gig either. Usually you're making money in some way. And now you're an influential person. And if we've learned anything in Washington, you can be good at nothing, but if people think you're influential, they want you around. All right. So let's go to the other side of the aisle. Declan, Kamala Harris's political team getting a lot of stories out there about how this is her time to shine. She's turning the page. It's a new vice presidency. What do you think? Good luck to them with that. Um, I A lot of this was, was spurred by uh, a New York Times story that came out either late last week or early this week, um, quoting about a two dozen uh, anonymous White House and Democratic officials in, in D.C. Uh, who are concerned that she has not taken the role of vice president and run with it. She has not done anything to boost her profile um, or prepare her for a, a national run were she to succeed Biden in either 2024 or 2028. I would love um, to see these people be vice president, by the way, and do all these things. I, look, I'm not someone who thinks that Kamala Harris is this incredibly talented politician. I don't. However, the vice presidency is a miserable, hard job that you basically can't win at. Correct. It's, it's, 
And especially when you're set up to fail, like she was with Biden, where he got into office and was like, Kamala, you take voting rights and immigration and And all things that I plan Um, to do nothing about and don't want to talk about. Correct. Um, And by the way, if you're acting, if you're doing too good a job or getting too much attention, you're going to get criticized for trying to overtake your boss and steal attention from him. But if you don't do enough to get attention, then you're missing the opportunity and not seizing it. I mean, give me a break. It's it's a very difficult position she's put in. It was made more difficult by how close the Senate was last time where she could never be more than a couple hours away from D.C. in case she was needed to, to cast a tie-breaking vote. I think she did that over 20 times, maybe almost 30 times um, in, the, in the first Congress because of the 50-50 nature of the Senate. Um, and all that to say, she still <laughs> hasn't done a very good job with, with the, the crap hand that she was dealt. I think that, um, you know, she did not when she ran for president the first time, she did not make it to uh, the primaries. I think that's evidence of something uh, that that she ended up in this job by being appointed, not by being elected. I think that uh, she probably would not be in the Senate were she running anywhere other than than California. Um, but it it is interesting that these stories are coming out. I mean, just a little bit of how the journalism sausage making works is this kind of story does not come out of nowhere. This is uh, somebody in the White House talking to the New York Times reporters that they see every day like, hey, you might want to write a story about how Kamala Harris is not <laughs> living up to expectations or, or, or not, um, you know, not meeting what, what we what we expect from her. Um, and, and so it's it'd be interesting to see who in the White House that was the only on the record uh, quote in this story from the Times was John Morgan, who's a Democratic kind of operative donor uh, in Florida. Um, but clearly, that's coming from somewhere, either the Biden team uh, trying to gently nudge her off the ticket in towards 2024, the Biden team concerned that she was going to mount a primary bid. I don't think that's a, a real concern. Um, but these stories don't come out of somewhere. There's There's got to be a reason. David! Thoughts, feelings on the vice presidency, warm bucket of spit or great opportunity? Well, the vice presidency has actually developed into a great opportunity or at least an opportunity to be involved, be influential and help the president govern over the past 20, 25 years or so. We, we saw Dick Cheney use it to great effect. We saw Joe Biden make himself relevant. We saw Mike Pence make himself very, very relevant. Um, it's almost amazing to me the way um, Vice President Kamala Harris has squandered a major opportunity to vest herself as the heir to the Democratic throne, given that her boss is of advanced age. And in some ways, I shouldn't be surprised because when you look at her 2020 presidential bid, here she has all of the, the tools political tools you can't teach. She's got a certain charisma about her. Um, she's got a presence. She's telegenic. Um, she's a former state attorney general and a United States senator. But she you, you never got a sense of where she stood or why she stood there. She kept trying to make everybody happy and was never centered. And as a politician, the, the one thing you need to do is you need to have a firm sense of who you are and why you're either where you are or trying to get where you're trying to get. And then everything else, you know, you can mess with and you can even overcome uh, flaws, you know, like I'm not that good at giving a speech. I mangle the English, English language, but people have to get a sense that you're sort of a bedrock. And she just has not been able to use the vice presidency to establish herself as a figure. It's not the easiest thing to do because you're always deferring to your boss, but, and, and it's possible that her relationship with Joe Biden is not that great, which has made things you know difficult for her. But she's just, she has not been able to take advantage of, of this opportunity and, and it's, it's hurt her, her future prospects. And without betraying too much of, of where I live, I am 
within sniper's distance of uh, the Naval Observatory Secret Service. So, <laughs> Kamala, you're doing a great job, and uh, and I and I I think that you know you'll be a great oh you elite you're all in, you're all <laughs> I'm sure you're going to a cocktail party in Georgetown. All right, last up, not worth your time? Question mark. So Disney reports its first subscriber lost 2.4 million subscribers leave. Uh, they're planning to slash 7,000 jobs. Lots of bad news for Disney. And my question to you two, just, you know, short form, um, is this proof of how you actually handle wokeness, et cetera, that the right has complained about. You don't need to pass laws. You don't need to have sort of this government solution that the market actually will take care of it. Declan? Yes, I think that's that's where I land. I, I will say that in Florida, they did pass some laws uh, specifically related to Walt Disney World and kind of the, the special district that governs um, how that how that is operated, and they act, Florida's legislature actually announced this week um, the changes that that will actually entail. It's DeSantis is going to be appointing uh, members to the the board that oversees that special county. Um, yes, it's uh, it's very strange. We did a TMD on it about a year ago. You should uh, you should check it out. I talked to a Disney historian, which is a cool job to, for somebody to have. Um, but yeah, I I, I think. There has been a a legitimate and earned uh, skepticism of of Disney that's grown over the past couple of years, not only for however one you describe progressive content that uh, tends to be leaning in one one direction, um, but also their their presence in China and their willingness to um, bend their content to China's censors. I just last week they. We saw that Disney Plus removed a Simpsons episode that made some reference to the to the Uyghur genocide um, at the at the behest of of the Chinese government, and so um, these are the the I was going to say roosters coming home to roost, but I don't think that's the correct saying. So uh, the the chickens coming home to roost uh, in in some sense, and hopefully, I mean they they change CEOs to ostensibly someone who was more progressive than their last CEO, but it seems to have learned some lessons while uh, the the previous leadership was kind of floundering here. So we'll see if there is a, a market correction here. It, it does seem like businesses are less willing to wade into the culture wars now than they were even six months, a year ago. Look, we've been living in this populist moment where big business uh, seems to many Americans to be all powerful, all influential and and unstoppable. And there are many reasons why Disney could be you know facing a financial crunch and, and be forced to, to lay off uh, employees. I mean we lived through a pandemic where everything happened at home, streaming uh, businesses reap the rewards. And now as we are back into a more normal way of living our lives, we're not home all the time. Um, it could just be a function of the business for streaming options, especially amid heavy competition, going back to a more normal footing. Um, we're possibly faced with a recession and, and many businesses are, have been acting accordingly to, to at least trim their labor force, if not reduce it significantly. It could also be the fact, and I'm sure Disney will will study this, that they cost themselves customers by taking a stand on politically charged issues on which not everybody agreed with them. Um, but I think it's a good reminder that that these things are not constant and permanent, and that the market over time will reward companies that function properly, other companies um, will suffer consequences. And sometimes you don't have to do anything wrong. Business just isn't as good as it was. And you have to make adjustments or you end up going out of business. And with that, we'll call it quits today. Thank you for joining. And if you want to hop in the comment section, become a member of the dispatch and we'll see you there. If not, 
feel free to throw us a rating wherever you're watching this, listening to this. You know what I mean. And it helps other people find the podcast when you rate us. Or just go about the rest of your day and live your life. Take a deep breath and marvel at the wonders around you. Trees are so cool. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com.